0: Thank you for, for joining us today. This uh just here is a session on experience of insurance of insurance in Africa. Um and I think Africa is an important uh frontier for us. There's a lot of work going on in Africa. We have a lot of visiting people from different African countries. We have the African seminar yesterday, which is very well attended. And I think we have different African countries here. So that's where it's all happening. Uh, we've got three talks this morning. First well, one is by um uh, each on three pictures and we're looking at the position today. Probably what most of us are familiar with. and he's a statutory actuary for a number of companies across the continent. He also provides all the support to Deloitte's offices in many of those countries um, and has assisted regulators in developing new regulations. Now we know who to blame when we don't like it. Um, he's also been involved in a number of due diligence exercises on insurance throughout Africa. And before joining Deloitte, he was a valuation actuary in the, the Life, which the valuation of a number of the applicants the oh, time okay. uh, no, He has a number of African clients as well as a number of multinational clients who have
1: uh production companies throughout Africa. Before he joined the Love
2: popular the more obvious destinations uh, and then in conclusion uh, we'll wrap up by just uh, suggesting where we think the next frontiers are likely to be um, and, and, and some of our thoughts and experiences and around the little that we've done on those frontiers. So I think one of the first considerations that uh, most companies have they start looking at entering the But I think we have, uh, uh, what, I, what I was trying to show here was the relative size of the markets. Um, and where that arrow is pointing is the South African market. Today. The red bars are indicating relative population sizes. So for South Africa, where the red indicator is, um, the population size is around 50 million people. If we start moving towards the left, you know, by far the biggest is, is Nigeria, which around 180 million people. So clearly, massive markets so but even um, move further towards the right of the island, you find the uh, lines of Kenya, Tanzania, uh, Uganda, um, markets that are uh, roughly our size and certainly projected in the years to come by, uh, uh, census like to your own life to become significant and uh, much bigger. Um, I'm not going to talk about very well, but the gray bar because of uh, the information is not too useful, but they're the very biggest markets. Um. am I'm gonna i Um, And then we've also got um, things like urbanisation that that are driving and making music for Africa do very well on that scale so they would be considered mostly free uh, South Africa in is probably next best as, as moderately free and the rest are you know just one level down Color scale there as well, so where there's a common green that would suggest a more attractive market to enter. Um, the circled countries are those that score um, that, that, that most highly, and not surprisingly, is where most of uh, the, the, the attention has, has come, um, certainly from South African countries, but from the, the multinationals as well. So, Nigeria, I mean, just its massive population, um, its a relative wealth. So really companion place.
3: Uh, Kenya uh through
2: its advancement and so I think also it's it's not
1: just its insurance uh, um, uh, presence but it's industrial presence is you know,
2: seen as a um, and then Ghana's another one that you know, scored pretty well on this largely
1: because of I think the, the growth of that is, you know,
2: time. So so that, that concludes the, the macro side of things. Uh,
4: I was a bit sort of concerned that it was a TED talk and I had to just walk around the road at a stage uh with no secret passport. So hopefully I'll keep it relatively short that I can tell you. Um, you know, one of the overarching themes that you have seen in the first couple of slides is this low penetration of the insurance uh, sector within a number of these countries. And Nigeria is, if anything, probably the the most extreme of the countries that we're looking at here today. Um, At roughly 0.1% penetration of the life uh, industry and only marginally better at 0.5% on the non-life industry and roughly only 15 dedicated life companies um, with, uh, as Norms have said, a population of 180 million and an insured population running in only to hundreds of thousands, it's clear there's massive opportunity, uh, which is why a number of uh, companies, you know, from outside of Nigeria as well as even you know, sort of internally, uh, are, are looking at it as an opportunity to to get in at a relatively early stage and hopefully. Uh, move up with that rising tide as um, penetration increases closer towards global averages. Um, Whilst with that opportunity, there obviously comes a number of challenges and lack of scale is probably the the, the biggest one. Um, As I mentioned, there are about 15 life companies, about 15 composites. The composites is actually an unusual feature. In most other countries, composites have been forced uh, to split. Whereas Nigeria is a bit uh, so different. Uh, what has happened about six or seven years ago, is, um, or maybe even a bit more now, is that they were forced, uh, a number of insurance companies were held by banks, were actually part of banks. And then there was forced separation from banks. But there hasn't been sort of splitting of the composites you know, sort of nature at this stage. Um, But as I was saying, the the scale of these companies, other than the the top one or two companies, most of the companies have a few thousand or few tens of thousands of individual policyholders at most. So you can imagine that the challenges of covering your expense and overhead base are are, are quite significant, and particularly post the separation, whereas in the past a number of uh, expenses and overheads were probably covered by the bank parent, it has exposed a number of these companies, and that has driven some degree of corporate activity in the market, as well as this you know, desire you know, to invest for growth. Um, the obvious question is why do we have that you know, sort of low penetration? Obviously, there are a number of, you know, sort of answers and factors here. You know, probably, you know, I mean, the biggest one obviously is a, just a chicken egg thing: when you're a small market, lack of awareness. Uh, lack of capital and, 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 and skills, you know, to invest in, you know, expanding your distribution network. It's, it's difficult to grow yourself out of a small, small spot. Uh, but there are some other, you know, unique you know, sort of features. So in particular, um, there's some sensitivity towards uh, talking about mortality in a number of, uh, sort of communities in West Africa. So whereas in Southern Africa we have this huge market in funeral cover, in Nigeria actually have. Uh, very, very limited individual risk uh, sort of business. In some of the companies that we've looked at, you literally have a few tens if or maybe a few hundreds of individual pure risk uh, policies. So then that leaves uh, investments or savings type of business. And uh, that is, uh, again, there isn't a significant incentive for people to invest in an uh, investment policy through an insurance company compared to the competing bank product. And they actually have very similar products they 're quite short term in nature typically um, and um, the, the the nature of those uh, investment policies is typically what you 'd think of as being unit linked in nature, although in most cases there isn 't a direct link uh, to underlying assets and if anything it 's a bit similar it 's more with profit in nature, more similar to the u s style of universal product where uh, at the end of the year a, a, a bonus rate is declared or credited to policies uh, and typically there's not that much you know sort of measurement of the or of a bonus stabilization reserve as it were uh, and you know most rates are typically declared from a market uh, marketing uh, sort of perspective which introduces its own challenges um, yeah so I mean on 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 Products, um, yeah, so spoken about risk, you know, sort of life on the group side of things. Group life is relatively mature. Uh, there is a requirement for employees to provide um, uh, cover to employees once they're above a certain size. So that's where a number of, you know, sort of entrants have uh, come in, but obviously there's, uh, there's a significant amount of competition on that side. Uh, credit life, yeah, we've also seen some growth there. Again, partly with some of the bank history, and then also as you know, new uh, companies have sort of come in, uh, there's been an awareness of uh, a partnering approach and t- making use of distribution, um, you know, sort of networks of banks uh, to, to, to get some degree of scale. So we've seen some growth there. And then one, one other sort of point, also sort of talking to the size of the market, is this issue around uh, licences and. You know, whereas one might expect with a relatively you know, sort of small market you know, for the regulator to encourage new companies to start up, there's actually a very explicit um, you know, sort of requirement for new entrants rather to actually acquire rather than apply. And a number of companies have tried to apply, taken a number of years, and then ultimately you know, sort of moved to the acquisition phase. And um, that obviously has had a number of impacts. The price, you know, the acquisition, given the limited supply, Pushed up price, and if anything, I think has gotten in the way of resolving some of the issues, and that 's a number of uh, acquisitions that you know we've worked on have fallen through, you know, just because of unrealistic expectations uh, around prices, and so some of these sort of issues of actually getting external expertise uh, or uh, in investments have probably actually been delayed uh, as a result of that. Um, I mean. We'll Perhaps, you know, sort of why is that you know, sort of reluctance? I mean, partly, um, well, I mean, it's hypothetical, but uh, I suspect one hypothesis is, you know, to rather sort of get that investment of skills and expertise and capital and you know, to, to help existing companies uh, build out as opposed to setting up competitors um, you know, who might sort of uh, almost induce the failure of existing companies and the consequent publicity uh, around that is, is possibly one factor. Okay. Um, Regulatory-wise, there has been some talk of some reform uh, applying International Association of uh, um, Insurance Solvers' supervisors, ICE uh, principles, but at at this point we still just have a flat uh, 2 billion naira capital requirement which equates to roughly 150 million rand. Um, I'm convinced if you were to actually do a risk-based capital metric, uh, the capital requirements would be significantly less for most of the companies given their existing scale. But we'll need to sort of move on from that. Um, You know, one other particular sort of feature that we have found with some of the exercises is just the um, ability to determine latent liabilities. Um, Sort of data, sort of management of some of these uh, savings uh, products is, is, is challenging. Um, but that said, the premium, the price premium that is sort of paid, um, you know, to nav or embedded value is such that you know, s- sometimes these data issues become less uh, sort of relevant in the larger sort of scheme of things. Okay, I'm, I'm conscious that I've spent a lot of time on Nigeria, so for Ghana, um, I'll just sort of focus on some of the keys sort of differences. Uh, so the one obvious one is, whilst penetration is still low at 0.5%, it is still, you know, sort of five percent high, uh, you know, five times as high as that of Nigeria's, you know, even though they're almost neighbours, uh, you know, very close by. Um, you know, and, and and part of that, I think, has been, um, you, know, you know, some of the investment from outsides of companies, both from South African firms a number of years ago, and then more recently from some other multinationals and. We've seen with some of the companies that we've worked with, um, you know, whereas you know, at one point they might have had 50 or 100 agents within a year, um, you know, sort of rolling out 500, 600s sort of agents, and that's sort of driven some of that growth. So I think on one of Norm's earlier slides, they're at about second or third highest sort of growth rate, uh, you know, within the market. And then with that growth and maturity, we definitely see a wider range of sort of products. Uh, you know, risk is much more sort of prevalent, um, as well as the savings. In terms of regulation, um, there is a a, a risk-based framework which is uh, been developed by the regulator, which we think is imminent, uh, although it's been imminent for a while. And, um, yeah, uh, also with that sort of growth that we've seen in in recent years, the market activity is also, there's been a lot of uh, external interest in terms of uh, acquisitions, which has also driven up prices significantly. Um, okay, Norm, I hope I've left you a bit of time.
2: Okay, so we're going to shift attention from West to East Africa, um, and I'm going to spend a little bit of time, like Peter, a little bit more time on Kenya than, than on some of the other countries. But um, I think overall, Kenya, uh, if you if you to look at the sophistication of that market, um, it's definitely the most developed after Southern Africa. Um, So, you know, and as a consequence, there has been um, significant interest, significant investment in Kenya. Um, It's it's seen as an East African regional hub, um, and and, and certainly um, I think it deserves that status. Um, In terms of market complexity, it's becoming more and more uh, complex as time goes by. Uh, significant regulatory reform is is already being introduced. It's been their draft papers out, a draft insurance bill. Um, So it's risk-based capital, enterprise risk management based style. Um, At the moment, uh, most of East Africa works on a net premium valuation type of methodology. That's soon to change to a a, a GPV or gross premium valuation. Um, Capital requirements are going to be somewhere, I guess, between uh, fsv car type of uh, sophistication and and, and sam um, and there, there 's clear product guidelines, corporate governance uh, in place um, and and draft microinsurance, which uh, adrian 's going to be talking about a little bit later um, so there 's a lot of interest there 's a lot of capacity coming through if you were at the Africa uh, seminar yesterday, you'd have heard that um, you know there 's a, a very strong pipeline of actuarial or or qualified actuaries coming through. Um, And that's not just in the actuarial frame. Um, I think it's within distribution, within other disciplines, um, in in what's required in order to run a successful insurance company. Um, So we have seen quite a lot of consolidation. Um, Just very recently, um, there was a big consolidation that I think we all know about. Um, Valuations are being driven up as well because of the interest. but I think uh, competition is going to start becoming in- increasingly intense in-, in that Kenyan market. Um, I think it's a feature perhaps across Africa where companies for some time now have been making investments into Africa. Um, the expectation has risen. I think analysts, shareholder expectations have risen. And, and I think companies are going you know, to need to start delivering on this promise. So so that's that's really what I wanted to talk about on on Kenya. Um, I'm not going to spend too much time on the next two countries. Tanzania gets a lot of interest, partly because it's a a neighbor of Kenya. It's got a big population, and really you would expect um, uh, there to be good growth potential there. Um, To date, it hasn't really materialized, and largely probably because of the fact that the the populace is quite wary of insurance. So for many years, there was a, a state insurance company that... Really mismanaged funds didn't meet expectations, and, and 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 that has had a very poor impact on on people's perceptions. Um, but but clearly the regulator um, is looking to to turn that around, and, and and like I say, there's a lot of interest from from South African companies and and and, and others. Um, Zambia, um, probably a little bit uh, similar to to. To, to Tanzania, a lot of potential, um, low levels of, po- of penetration, and, and obviously significant uh, opportunity for growth. I think, at the moment, the commodity downturn is probably hurting there a little bit. Um, but they too, they're looking to improve their their complexity, their sophistication within the market. Some regulatory reform is starting to happen. Um, for example, uh, and even currently, um, companies submitting their annual returns are needing to, to Uh, presents a kind of car-based solvency uh, calculation. Um, So so that brings me really to the the next slide, the the new frontiers in Africa. Um, Like I said, I think think there there are probably two elements that that South African companies will be looking at in 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 the near term. The one will be to consolidate the investments that they have made and to start realising the value and the potential on those. But um, we certainly have had approaches from from, from countries, from companies as well looking to go into other parts of Africa, so the, the Francophone Northern Africa, um, clearly the Portuguese Africa. Um, one of the things that we have found in, in, in those engagements is that the language barrier is very significant. So, whilst you, when you're talking to investors, shareholders and the like, um, you know, it sounds very good, but when you actually get in, in on the ground, it becomes very difficult. And I, I know an example of a very seasoned um, uh, uh, actual executive who, who who moved to Mozambique, and within a week, he realised that he wasn't going to be able to do the job. Um, so, so there are those kinds of challenges. But but clearly, you know, if you're looking at Africa, you, you can't be selective. And and. and um, Uh, uh, there's no doubt that South African firms, other multinationals will be looking at those other markets that hitherto have been left unexploited from from a South African point of view. Clearly, um, we don't have the kind of advantages that we might have in Africa, Uh, so the language is the biggest one. Um, And so what we will find is that we are going to be competing with, with the multinationals, with the really big um, cash reserves, and and we would expect those valuations to be quite high. So, Nikki, I think that concludes what we wanted to say. Thank you.
0: Thank you. We are going to go through all the the talks first, and then we'll have questions at the end f- um, to address to all of the speakers. So, the next presentation is by Anton Renker. (coughs) Sorry. Anton currently leads the team of actuaries in the Insurance Consulting Division, Alexander Forbes. They consult to 70 life and general insurers across 10 countries. Prior to Alexander Forbes, Anton worked at RMB, where he serves the actuary to a number of their insurance licences. And he's also acted as a speaker in South Africa, Botswana, Nigeria and Ghana. Uh, and he's going to take us now through some of his personal
5: experiences. Anton? So I'm not an actuary. I'm an explorer. And instead of a kayak or a compass, I use my knowledge, experience, and actual science to explore the insurance market in Africa. So over the past couple of years, I've travelled the length and breadth of Africa, and these are some of the things I've learned. Africa can be a scary place, so a year ago we are invited to a meeting with the Nigerian government in Abuja, very thrilled, this is a meeting that we've been wanting for quite a while. There's one problem though, there have been a number of bombings on the outskirts of of Abuja, there are further threats made, and so Abuja is an island. After much deliberation, we finally decide that we will go with armed security and we will get in and out as quickly as possible. So there we are, off to Abuja, land at the airport, expecting a couple of armed guards, our security detail, with a couple of revolvers. Instead, we are met with two buckets loaded with heavily armed guards and two big black land cruisers. Something like that. (laughs) And so when I inquire why two land cruisers, since we are only two people, I'm told very seriously by the chief of security that, sir, in case we get bombed, we've got a better chance that at least one of you will survive. <laughs> Very comforting. Awesome. Let's, let's go. So there we are, off to, off to Abuja, off to the capital in our convoy, and every time we get to a location, the dozen or so guards will get off. They will survey the area, secure the location, and then give us all clear to get out. By this time, a number of onlookers have gathered, because they want to see who this very important person is that is going to emerge from this vehicle. And of course, it's only me. And I could see every time the disappointment on their faces as they, <laughs> as they turn around and walk away. So while this was a very scary experience, it was also very exciting. So for that one day, I felt like a rock star. But really, so advisor is there. Use it. It exists for a reason. And that's how I found out. I booked in Ghana a couple of years ago in a hotel in Accra. Also, I thought it turned out the hotel was about three hours outside Accra. Finally, get to the hotel. It is pitch dark. I'm convinced it's closed. But I'm convinced by the driver to at least go to the reception and have a look. Get to the reception. There's about 20 downlights, of which one is one is working. I walk up to the reception. I can hardly make out the lady behind the counter, but I can at least see there's somebody there. I proceed to tell her that I am booked in this hotel. She walks around the reception desk, walks it as one light with a guest book, holds it up beneath the light and confirms I am indeed booked in this hotel. So there I am, off to my room, which turns out to be a little bungalow in the garden, very small, about the size of a bathroom. Get to the room inside. You've got a shower and a toilet. The shower is above the toilet. So very efficient. You can do everything you need to do <laughs> all, all at once. No aircon, 35 degree heat. The baggage handler proceeds to switch on the TV and switches on to mm-hmm. a soccer channel. And I thought that's quite nice. Obviously things are like soccer. It turns out there's only one channel. I finally, I finally go to bed in what I can only describe as something resembling the bed I had when I was four years old. Tiny, very low to the ground, complete with side rails. So it's like a little box that you have to sleep in. But really, African people are some of the friendliest and most hospitable people that I've ever met. Every time you've got a long meeting, a long session, they will always offer food. And it's usually buffet style, which which works for me. Because I'm a picky eater so I can pick my way around the food and find something that I'm familiar with. But a couple of months ago I'm meeting with a very long-standing client of ours, a very dear client, and he tells me we're just gonna meet in his office. It is over lunchtime so he proceeds to order food. He's very thrilled to tell me that he's gonna order some local delicacies for us today. The food comes. It's only the two of us. Uh, I'm sitting across the table from him. There's no other food. And so it will be very disrespectful not to, not to eat the food. And he's obviously, he's also waiting for me to, to dig in. I'll show you what it looks like. I hope you can see. So, all right, meaty. Uh, cooked, at least, looks like it. Bit of garnish on as well. Who wants to see what it looks like before it was cooked? <laughs> so, very big snails. But I'm told it's a local delicacy. Huh? So, uh, You take one for the team, and uh, when you you get back to the office, you tell your seniors what a dedicated employee they have. (laughs) But really, Africa, Africa is the future. So Africa has currently the fastest growing population in the world. And McKinsey projects that by 2040, the working population in Africa will surpass that of China. Furthermore, Africa is the youngest population in the world. More than 50% of the people in Africa is below the age of 20. That is simply staggering numbers. So the global economy looks towards China to fuel consumption and demand. And here we sit on the doorstep of an economic bow house. There's even numbers that already stack up. Nigeria has a working population of 90 million people compared to the 35 million in South Africa. Ethiopia's got a working population of 51 million people. Even if technology is spreading. In Nigeria alone, we have 41 million internet users. So I'm passionate about Africa. I'm also passionate about insurance. And why is that? It's not a very exciting topic, right? But to answer this, we need to go back to January 2010. An earthquake struck Haiti, measuring 7.0 it causes massive devastation. We're talking about 280,000 buildings destroyed. Half of the schools in the country are destroyed. they toll of between 100,000 and 300,000 people. Haiti was already a poor country, but this recovery from this earthquake proves to be insurmountable. Six months after the earthquake, only 2% of the rubble had been removed. And the capital is largely unsurpassable. Six weeks after the Haiti earthquake, we've got another earthquake. This time, the fifth largest earthquake ever recorded. Off the Chile coast, it measures 8.8, and again causes massive devastation. In Chile, there are 500,000 buildings destroyed. And I'll show you some of the pictures. 500,000 buildings destroyed. The earthquake is 500 times more powerful than the earthquake that took place in Haiti. But the recovery process in Chile is much faster and much more efficient. Why is that? Clearly, there are many factors at play, but I'm going to focus on one, insurance. Insurance is widespread in Chile. In fact, the premium spent per capita is the highest in Latin America. So we've got an economic loss in Haiti of $8 billion to $14 billion. We have an economic loss in Chile are 15 to $30 billion, so roughly double. But in Chile we've got an insured loss of $8 billion, of which 90% is reinsured to the international market amongst roughly 90 insurers and reinsurers. So here we have Chile, just had this massive earthquake, devastating natural disaster. They've got a guaranteed 72 billion dollars coming in from international markets. Insurance also forces another thing. Insurance forces engineers, building contractors, and the construction industry to comply with strict regulations. As a result, in Chile, the earthquake that was 500 times more powerful than the earthquake in Haiti, in Chile we've only got a death toll of 1,000 people. The death toll in Haiti, 100,000 to 300,000 people. So what is the insured loss in Haiti? Remember, $8 billion to $14 billion economic loss. The insured loss, only $100 million. And as a result, today, we still have, five years after the earthquake, we still have 85,000 people living in tents. So insurance is a fantastic and very powerful mechanism to redistribute wealth. So back to Africa. In Africa we have some of the most unequal societies in the world. Insurance can play a pivotal role in uplifting and securing those communities, whether it is through livestock and crop insurance or whether it is simply insuring the dwellings against flood and fire. In fact, the Geneva Association has found that insurance premium growth is one of the leading indicators for economic growth. Furthermore, that insurance stabilizes economies, increases saving rates, and increases available working capital. All these things we need for Africa. But we we have a problem. And we saw it now with uh, Peter and Norm's presentation. The insurance penetration in Africa is very, very low. We're talking about 1.4%. So how do we increase this? Clearly, there are many players that we need. But I'm going to focus on one, the guys in this room. Guys and girls in this room. Actuaries. Let's look at the numbers. South Africa, we know we have a lot of actuaries. We've got a lot of insurance companies. Let's look at Africa. The flip side, we've got very, very few actuaries, many, many insurance companies, more than South Africa. We don't even have, that's a proportion of, of the black uh, circles are actuaries, the red circles are insurance companies. We don't even have an actually per, per company in Africa. So a massive, massive gap. There's one attribute that all my clients share across Africa. It is a hunger for improvement and knowledge. So we see many clients, many general insurance clients that quote motor vehicles on a flat rate, all motor vehicles. We see life companies writing life policies without mortality tables. For us, that is inconceivable. For them, it is common practice. Why? Because they do not have the actual skills internally. So actually, can have a tremendous effect on the insurance market in Africa, as well as banking, health, retirement, and many, many more. So to conclude, when I mention Africa, I th- people generally see this, and certainly my friends and family see this. They see devastation, death, and chaos. I see this. Prosperity, improvement, and innovation. So I appeal today to your sense of adventure and your desire to to do good to help us grow the insurance market in Africa, to help Africa grow. Thank Thank you.
0: Thank you, Anton. <clears throat> so we're sitting on this powerhouse that's got the potential to do great things economically, and how can we use insurance to help to help realise this? So Adrian's going to talk about microinsurance in in Kenya. Um, Adrian is an actuary at Genry, um, and he's responsible for the account management and new business development in South Africa and he has a particular focus on business growth throughout Africa. Before he started working at Genry, Adrian spent 10 months in Nairobi, working at the Kenyan Insurance Regulatory Authority, the IRA, not the ones with the bombs, um, and on on a World Bank sponsored project. And while he was there, he was responsible for drafting microinsurance and index-based insurance policy papers and those will form the basis um, for redrafting the Kenyan insurance regulations. So he's got some really hands-on experienced interactions with insurers across Africa, and he's going to share his unique insights into the changes and regulations that might be coming. Thank you. Thank you, Nikki.
3: I think this is... Okay, hmm. where's the?
6: And yes, I
3: have. Sorry about that. the small technical glitch. So I'm just gonna. <laughs>
0: I think while we – <laughs> Rob's going to get up and dance for us. <laughs> while, we, while we wait, perhaps we can take some questions. Um, I think there are roving microphones. So does anybody have any so far? Okay. At the left-hand side there.
3: Hi there. Peter Carswell from Milliman. A uh, question which I wanted to ask those of you who have been doing the work in Africa to share your experiences on the quality of the actuarial work and the actuarial reports that you've been
4: seeing, especially when you're coming in with buy side support for M&A work. Thanks, Peter. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's challenging um, from a couple of different perspectives. In a number of the countries, there's very limited regulation um, or you know, sort of direction as to how the actuary is meant to sort of report or you know, sort of calculate sort of liabilities. Uh, so certainly, we see quite a wide range, you know, sort of a, a, of, of approaches. Um, you know, so I mean, Nigeria, for example, there's, there's almost completely no direction. I think within the act, they sort of prescribe like a 10% RBNR or something. Um, so um, I, I do see a range of things and. Um, you know, re- relatively sort of limited high-level uh, r- reports. The also, sort of talking to the capacity, there are very few you know, sort of evaluators, um, and I do have some you know, sort of concerns about the, you know, the ability to actually sort of service you know, the, the number of companies uh, that they do uh, provide reports for. Um, but yeah, I mean that said, it's you know, within yeah, qu- quite uncertain guidelines that they have to produce things. I don't know if anyone else.
5: So, yeah, I agree with, uh, agree with Peter on that, uh, so we see a mixed bag, so, so some of the other reports that we see are, I would, I would say, not up to standard, so what we try to do from our side, we try to follow one standard across all countries, at least where there's not uh, definite guidance. So we tried to bring in that best practice, Tried to bring in, bring in the kind of reports that you will see in South Africa and build it up from there with caveats. Obviously, some stuff you won't include, but um, it's,
2: it's getting there. It's moving in the right direction now, yeah. but it's not a lot of guidance here. Yeah. Um, maybe I could just add one thing. I think various markets, they're very encouraging signs being shown. So I think I mentioned earlier Kenya and yesterday an African seminar as well um the great strides and and, and to some extent i think there's been criticism that some of the regulation is ahead of the capacity but but having said that the capacity is coming online quite quickly there as well so you know there there is an argument uh you know for the regulators to actually you know start raising the, the bar and i think the capacity will follow
0: just to add from my experience, I've also seen the regulators are now starting to ask for a whole lot more information and, and saying, where are your full actuarial valuation reports? You pay these actuaries. We want to see what they're giving you. So there's definitely, from the regulatory perspective, there's also more push that they, they are trying to raise the bar. And I think Adrian's now sorted out his technical problems, so I'm going to hand over to Adrian.
3: Thank you very much. All sorted. So after three... Um very exciting years working in London doing Solvency two work and auditing work. I was wondering what was the most adventurous field an actuary can work in without breaking the code of conduct. So, after hearing about the developing um, industry of microinsurance and being advised by a colleague that the best place to get a job in the industry is to go to the International Microinsurance Conference, I jetted off to Indonesia where the 2013 conference was held, armed with only my qualification certificate. So there I met represent, uh, representatives of the World Bank and the International Labour Organization. And they are, spon- well at that time still, uh, they were sponsoring the redesign of the Kenyan Insurance Act and regulations. And they were looking for an actuary who can help with, um, helping with the microinsurance insurance part and the index-based insurance side. So assured that my, um, by the profession, that my qualification will apply to wider fields, I decided to jet off to Kenya to achieve my actual destiny. <laughs> but before I go into explaining the actual regulations uh, that are being drafted, I thought I'd just give some little bit more uh, background specifically on the microinsurance industry um, in Kenya, even though we have uh, good presentations explaining the broader insurance field in Kenya. So Kenya is well known for its um, very pioneering M-Pesa mobile money system, Uh, a very well-developed microfinance industry and many large uh, local insurance companies. So you'd expect there to be a very well-developed microinsurance industry in the country. However, the opposite is unfortunately true. So based on the results of the latest landscape study of microinsurance in Africa in 2014, the microinsurance penetration rate in Kenya was only 6% versus 64% in South Africa. Now some of you might remember the great numbers being shown earlier um, in the first presentation where the numbers are slightly different. Those numbers were premiums versus GDP and versus this being number of people insured versus the entire population. So obviously microinsurance got very small premiums so the total number of people population, uh, covered is slightly higher in both cases, but still very low. So um, what are the reasons for this? There are plenty that you can think of, but I'm just gonna mention a few of them. The first is that the products, the premiums, are simply too high, the microinsurance insurance uh, premiums. Um, and with claims ratios around 20% and expense ratios of 60%, it simply doesn't offer any value of money for the policy orders. So that's where they're not buying it. Secondly, if anybody's been in Kenya and tried to make a claim um, on the insurance policy, my old housemate tried to make a claim on his motorbike and after six months he gave up on the process. Um, you'd understand for people living in rural areas, claiming takes simply too long and if uh, my insurance policy pays out too late, the person has already sold his assets and it doesn't add any value. The next thing is that even though they have this great m mobile money system, technically they're not allowed to use mobile for application and claims payment. So that technology is not being utilized as much as possible. And then there's great difficulty in actually reaching the low income population. Um, if you think in Kenya, there is around 100,000 uh, MPesa agents, so everywhere you go you can uh, charge your mobile phone and pay ma- people money um, over your mobile phone there's only 5,000, roughly 5,000 agents who have a certificate of proficiency in order to be an insurance agent to sell agents, uh, sell insurance. So you can obviously think that there's no way they'll reach all 45 million people in Kenya. So all of this combined means that the insurers only focus on the high-end market and the regulators create an environment uh, where it is very difficult to sell micro-insurance products. So I just explained the problems of micro insurance but on the other side Kenya um, has a very well developed or relatively very well developed uh, micro agricultural insurance sector um, with over 200,000 people being covered by index-based crop insurance and um, livestock insurance so the what's, um, I've I haven't spent time explaining what micro-insurance is because I assumed everybody here knows what it is, but I will quickly take some time to explain how index-based insurance works. So for index-based insurance, you start off with measuring the rainfall at the signal weather station um, in the country. So in the middle of the area. So for example, it drains 500 millimeters at the weather station. Now based on past experience and your fancy actual models that you build, you can then predict that you'd expect it to have rained 200 milliliters in some areas, 400 milliliters in others, and 1,000 in other areas. I would have wanted to use the laser, but I cannot laser both sides at the same time, so hopefully it explains uh, itself. Um, so based on the measured rainfall, we assume this fall. Then based on the assumed rainfall, you can then calculate the expected loss in all the three different areas and then make a payout accordingly. So in this example, if the trigger for paying out um, starts at 500 millimeters and everything below it, you start paying out, up to zero rainfall, it means that the area which received 200 millimeters will receive three-fifths of the sum assured paid out to them whereas the area with 400 millimeters of rainfall will receive one-fifth of the, rainf- uh, of the summer shed paid out uh, to them, and the area of lots of rainfall received no payout. Um, and that is irrespective of the actual rainfall that fell in those areas. It's only based on what the index predicted. So you can expect that some areas uh, receive a little bit more than um, the actual rainfall as the payout is more than actual rainfall, and some received less than the actual payout. But the important thing about this is that you don't need a loss assessor to go to each individual area and assess how much the actual rainfall was. So that firstly saves you lots of expenses because if you've got 10,000 farmers in this area, it's very expensive to go to each individual farm. And it also allows the payout to happen a lot quicker as soon as the index has been measured. The other, so this serves as a great way of insuring farmers and it serves as the same purpose as credit life does in the microfinance industry. By ensuring that the farmer will be able to pay back his agricultural loan, banks are more willing to loan money to the farmers and then they can um, plant more expensive or better crops. The, I've just explained the weather index uh, here, but there's many other ways this can be uh, applied. So you can look at uh, satellite images to determine if it's drained or not, and you can apply, say, a hurricane. If you measure the wind speeds, you can have a hurricane payout or not. Um, you can also apply it for mitigation or consequential losses. So mitigation would be that if you know a storm is coming, for, say, for example, a hurricane, it can pay out before the hurricane actually hits land, and that allows the people to either evacuate using the money or build sandbags, etc. And consequential losses is that a farmer can actually pay his laborers um, even though there's nothing for them to farm. So that explained how index-based insurance works. I'm certain if you put on your actuarial hat, you'll be able to um, describe lots of possible problems with this product. So I'm just gonna run through them quickly. Um, The first is that it's difficult to determine if there is insurable interest. At the moment, there is no, it's uncertain, there's no verification if the person actually planted the crop or actually incurred a loss. So the person can actually never plant uh, seeds and still get a payout. This lack of insurable interest causes the policy actually to not be able to be sold as insurance. And this sort of uh, problem increases when you try to do mitigation or consequential loss uh, cover. The second is the high basis risk. Now basis risk is the difference between what the person actually, the drought he experienced, the actual loss, and what's paid for him. So if you go back to the 400 millimetres area, you can see some areas receive much less rainfall uh, than 400 milliliters, and other areas receive much more than 400 milliliters, the, the dry and the green areas. But their payout is the same. So basis just goes both ways. Sometimes you receive too little, and sometimes you receive too much. Um, in an ideal environment, you'd be able to have a weather station at each area, but that is too expensive, so that is not a solution. And the last problem is indemnity. Currently, you cannot offer uh, indemnity because because of basis risk, you cannot pay the exact loss. However, in the current market, uh, index-based insurance is offered and advertised and sold as indemnity, and that has resulted in insurers having to afterwards make additional payments beyond what the index says to protect their reputation. Um, But this is something we want to avoid if we want to formalize the industry. So, technically as it stands, index-based insurance is illegal in Kenya. But unlike with micro-insurance, which also has regulatory problems, the regulator has given regulatory exemption to allow pilot projects, index-based projects, to be launched to sell index based insurance to small scale farmers with the hope to develop the market. It is now time for the regulations to actually catch up. So, having explained all the problems, I will now go through the regulations which hope to address each of the things I've mentioned. So, for the draft microinsurance regulations, First, most important point is there is now a definition on what a microinsurance product is, and it's decide, um, the, um, defined as fixed sum assurance. So you cannot offer indemnity. There is also a maximum 12 months contractual term that's renewable every 12 months automatically. So you can reprice every 12 months, but the policyholder can also walk away every 12 months. And the payment frequency doesn't have to be annual; it can now be daily or weekly, etc. The waiting periods, there is allowance for, to include waiting periods and some exclusions, basic exclusions, are allowed. And the premiums can be updated, what they call file and use. Currently, you have to submit the premiums and get approval before changing it. Now you can do it automatically and just tell the regulator why you changed it. The next is the creation of a microinsurance company-specific license, separate from a life or general insurance license. And they are only allowed to sell improved microinsurance products, so products that meet the first definition. They've got much less capital requirements, um, they don't need a, a fully qualified actuary, and they can bundle micro, uh, general insurance and life type microinsurance products. So the hope is they can firstly allow traditional insurance to be formalized, and then there will be more insurance companies to address specific needs of the people. Important to note that conventional insurance companies can still sell microinsurance. Uh, it's just the other way around. The microinsurance cannot sell conventional products. Then, allowance is made for a micro agent that does not need a certificate of proficiency. So the hope is they can then piggyback on the 100,000 better agents that are out there. Um, also, you can now do sales electronically. So you can do your application and claims process via a mobile phone. And then the last thing is um, unfortunately, for all the qualified actuaries here, now you only have to be a, an associate level in order to act as a microinsurance actuary. Or the, uh, the certificate of actuarial and, uh, analyst that the British uh, Institute has brought out. Next, I'll discuss the regulations, the key regulations on index based insurance. The first is that you define insurable interest at the outset of the policy, at the inception of the policy, and not when the loss actually occurs. So therefore, a farmer must be able to prove that he planted, but he doesn't need to prove that he actually incurred a loss. Um, Therefore, the only requirement is that the policyholder needs to be able to prove that the occurrence of the risk will have an adverse impact on them. So this allows for a slightly wider application of index-based insurance. For example, a farmer um, can get uh, insurance but also a farm worker can get drought insurance because if there's a drought, the farmer won't be able to pay for the farm worker and then he will have no income. So now even though the farm worker doesn't own the land on which the drought occurs, he can still buy index-based insurance to protect his own income during the farming season. The next is around a basis risk, and the first is there's no explicitly stated requirement around managing basic risk. So that sounds very strange, but the reason is that otherwise it becomes too constricting towards the model. No fallback payment is needed. The fallback payment is the example when the loss is actually more than the payout um, measured by the index, they are not legally obliged to make that payment. And um, they are allowed to make under and over payments as long as they pay what the index said they should pay. But in the actual report, when the product is designed, the actually must say how they've gone about trying to minimize basis risk. Um, The regulator can withhold or cancel Um, the policy um, if it shows that basis risk was too much if it was measured later on. And the insurer must have a backup system in place. So, for example, if you have one weather station in the area and that weather station happened to be struck by lightning and couldn't measure the rainfall, then it's not an excuse for not paying out to the farmers. You must have a backup system approved of how you will determine the rainfall in that area. And the next one is... You're only allowed to sell fixed sum-insured cover, um, so not indemnity index-based insurance, um, with uh, a maximum sum-insured having to be specified at the start. Um, Yes, the last thing, you're not allowed to advertise it as indemnity, so the message must be very clear towards the users. So you don't require any loss assessment. And the last thing is automatic payout is needed. Because the farmer itself doesn't know what the index said, the insurance company will pay out automatically and approach the farmer with the payout. And the regulator will then follow up to make certain they actually paid what the index said they should pay. And the data must be verified by a third party. So the insurance company cannot say, oh, it, it rained everywhere according to us. There must be a third party validating that. So, with all that explained, what do we hope to achieve? Hopefully, um, increased regulation and regulatory certainty will make certain that the chief risk officer and the head of legal doesn't prohibit any of the insurers entering these markets and selling microinsurance. We also hope that reduced regulatory requirements and greater design freedom will encourage actuaries in the market to think creatively about how we can sell microinsurance efficiently, and give value for money for the users. Methods has been put in place to reduce overheads and transaction costs, to allow smaller premiums and higher claims ratios, and also, we hope it will result in improved clients' experience via better application processes, better claims processes, and faster interaction with the agents and the company. So, the draft regulations has been written and it has been reviewed by the insurance industry and is now up, um, at the Kenyan parliament to approve it. So you never know with politicians how long it will take or what they will change, but um, as much as possible, it, it is finished. It is now, however, so the situated, the oh, oh back. Um, it is now up to the insurance companies here. Uh, the insurance companies, the regulations have been set and the environment has been created where we hope microinsurance and index based insurance can flourish. It is now up to the actuaries in these com- uh, countries, and most of them are sitting here today, to embrace microinsurance and discover that the fortune truly is at the bottom of the pyramid. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you. We now have time for questions.
1: Thank you to all the presenters for a very informative presentation. I have a question which, pardon my ignorance, why do we refer to it as Africa when South Africa is in Africa?
5: I'll go. Uh, I suppose to, to draw the distinction. So yes, we are in Africa, of course, but I think uh, the problem is many South Africans think that we are separate. We're not. We part of Africa, right? But we're sitting here on a lot of skills, a lot of knowledge. And the point is, there's all this, let's say, ground north of us. All these countries, all these communities that we can help if we just actually just step across the border. It's just there. It's not Europe. It's not. Far East, it's not this, this foreign country. And uh, certainly when people ask me what, what Africa is like, I always tell them it's pretty normal. For me, it's normal compared to South Africa. It's not Europe, it's not Far East, it's not this weird and wonderful world, it's, it's pretty normal. But, um, yeah, so I suppose to just order that distinction that we need to explore and we need to spread
4: and spread the knowledge. If I can just say... Uh uh, talk. Yeah, I mean, it's a really good question. I just think it's actually unacceptable that we. Uh, I guess it's just like almost a human nature almost to think of people different or, or separate or distinguished. But yeah, uh, I just think it's a really bad practice that we should all get out of. Um, actually, yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, it's sort of funny. We actually. No, 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 I'm not going to pass on that sort of story because it's uh, still attributed to somebody. Okay, cheers. <laughs>
1: Um, Thanks, Um, Thanks, Adrian. I really enjoyed your presentation. I just had a quick question around the agents who are now not going to be required to have any formal um, process of verification or education and and, um, kind of upskilling as such. Do you see that as a problem in terms of mis-selling? I don't know if we need to be making sure that they're selling the right product to the right people. And especially with now the premiums being collected on a monthly basis, would we then see very high lapses or, or kind of a fall-off rate?
3: Um, I think I'll two ways I want to answer it. The first is that um, that they don't receive no training. It's not like you get somebody from the street and say, "Can you start selling it?" Um, the difference is, you don't have to go to a formalised qualification process. The certificate of proficiency I mentioned, which can take up to six months to receive. So, um, instead of having an external body, the insurers are now responsible for their own agents and make certain they train them to a standard, much lower, but um, so you can reach more people, but not insufficient. The next thing about mis-selling, etc. I think if you look at the situation, say with the Mpesa agents, that's all over Kenya. If you think about it, uh, mobile money payments and mobile financial transactions are also complex in principle. It's just the way the product has been designed has been made so that people can very easily understand it and the trust has been built around it. So, the hope is that how a microinsurance product has been de- described, what the criteria is, will allow for a very simple, easily understandable product that allows daily premium payments, um, easily uh, cancelable, uh, very few exclusions, etc. So those things will create an environment that reduces the impact of mis-selling. So even if there's mis-selling, it was only your premium that you paid for a week until um, you realize you didn't pay annual premium, you paid for f- six days. Um, or you received it for free because now it was allowed. Um, so, hopefully, an environment is created that the products themselves are now simple enough that a micro-insurance agent can explain it properly to the people.
0: I think that's very different to kind of how we look at insurance where we sort of look at monthly payments.
7: <coughs> uh, thank you for a good presentation. Um, I think you highlighted the, the scarcity of actuaries in some of the countries with all the regulations coming in. So, can you hear me? Yeah, <laughs> Uh, with all the regulations coming in. Um, in South Africa, we've got um, Solvency 2 came to South Africa. We spent a lot of time and effort, a lot of actually spent effort to convert and adapt it to the South African environment. I find this often not the case with African countries, that regulations come in from overseas on a theoretical um, approach, but but it's not tuned for the environment. and. Part of the problem probably is the scarcity of resources to do that. Is there something you think we can do as South Africa in terms of having excess capacity of actuaries to do that? To really come down and make regulations fit the environment and not just sort of copy and paste regulations from elsewhere that often do harm to to the industries in these countries?
3: I think the others will all be able to add something to that question. Um, just my own opinion, after the Africa session yesterday, I think it was very well explained by Moses from the Kenyan society about them being aware that they're trying to walk before they can crawl. Um, I think the, the, the actuaries on the ground there are aware of the, the risks and the implications of that. Um, and it's good to see where the actuaries are engaging with the regulators to try and find a middle ground. But it is definitely a risk. and this is another point. Um, the work I did was sponsored by the World Bank and ILO. So there's lots of donor money pressure international organizations, especially through the IAIS, and trying to enforce international standards. So it's not, it's not something that's just happening to Kenya. It's happening all over the world that there's this pressure to bring all regulations in the world to the same standard, even though it might not be appropriate to each country.
2: Yeah, I, I also think um, it's something that the society and through the Africa Committee as well, we try and you know present the possibilities of what we can do. But uh, to a very large extent, um, it becomes difficult for us to kind of prescribe on different societies or different organisations of what could be done. Um, and so, I think one of the positive things is as 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 uh, more and more bodies start developing on the continent. So Task as an example, the Ghanaians are making great strides, hopefully at Nigeria as well. So when you know when you've got a, a bit of a groundswell and um, requests that come from countries themselves, I think then then that makes it quite a lot easier for us to know how and when to engage um, yeah I'll add
5: to so that uh, if we just look at uh, Nigeria as a good example, uh, they're also getting pressure from World Bank to introduce risk-based capital. Uh, and then when the clients mention risk-based capital or regulate risk-based capital, then uh, there's clearly some confusion about what it means as well. Everybody thinks someone it too immediately, which clearly will be way too onerous. Um, but we are, so they want to bring this in. They do not have the skills and the people to do it properly. So we need to put up our hands, yes, and say we can help. Let's take the lessons that we've seen from South Africa, where South African regulator have failed or or done well, and all the other countries, Kenya and Botswana and Mauritius, where there's been uh, developments over the last couple of years. So we need to take those examples, we need to stick up our hands and go to those regulators and say we we can help.
4: I mean, maybe just to sort of close that, sort of point out. Uh, I think always to bring a sense of pragmatism to it. Uh, I personally get sort of quite annoyed when I don't know. I think quite often there's an actual tendency to uh, almost a push for almost like spurious amounts of detail and technicality and complexity. Um, and you know, so if if we do assist, you know, so people, um, uh, I really just sort of call on people just to bring that sense of pragmatism. Personally, I think. Sam is too complex, but anyway. <laughs> That's a whole new debate. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Thank you. And I think also just to add to your point, Norman, I mean, a lot of the, con- the World Bank, as Adrian said, the World Bank and IMF sponsor a lot of it, they're not looking to South African actuaries to assist in Africa. I mean, I've, the countries I'm involved in, we've had people from Australia, Singapore, Hong Kong, you know, they come with a very different mindset and perhaps some of the, the way things that, that don't apply. Um, so I don't know if there is any way we can approach the IELTS uh, and the World, World Bank and say, well, you know, we've got people here who've worked in these countries and who have maybe some better understanding of the issues.
6: <clears throat> uh, um my, my comment question is basically starting off with, I think the way we look at um, Africa outside of South Africa is is what's, what starts off as the problem because we try and fit our products, the products that you're used to. So you never start with the customer, no matter what the, the company may say, you start with the customer, customer first and whatever, but you, you always have this box of a product and lapses and uh, premiums have to be paid at this frequency and so on and so forth. We never really go in and try to solve the problem that people actually have. And I think that speaks to, because we look at things like uh, corruption indexes and all sorts of things. Those things are there. They are not going anywhere, Um, at least not in the next 20, 30, 40, maybe 50 years. So if we really want to operate in those markets, those are some of the realities that we actually have to accept and say, you know, um, if the markets are informal, what kind of products can we really bring to them? What do they really want and bring those those products to them? It, it speaks to even the issue of regulation that they were talking about because what's going to happen is, what, what you find happening is you bring regulations that are suitable for normal insurance products and make it impossible. Now you now need micro-insurance regulations um, to make it easier to actually sell products in South Africa to, to that market. but. When, when you're talking about best practice, what people look at are, are things that are not really enabling for people to actually sell products in in those markets. Even if you look at the number of when we say actuaries to um, to companies, it's important. I mean, there's there's no doubt that we need more actuaries in Africa. Um, but do we need as many as we have in South Africa? They just drive up costs. Um, I'm, I'm I'm being honest. I mean. You don't need 30 actuaries to to service a company in Zimbabwe or in Malawi. One or even half an actuary may be enough. And yeah, you just make sure it's the right half. But but for me, it's it's basically it's basically just ensuring that because if you have the right product, you may not need the same level of actuarial advice that you actually need in a, a more developed country or in a country that has different dynamics. So. I think we, we just need to go back to the basics and say what made us start with insurance in the first place. We saw a problem and we went to solve that problem. So what problem are we seeing and what products are we are we going to bring to the people that actually solve their problem without actually trying to think of what have you seen and what have we studied and so on and so forth. Yeah. Um, so
2: Thanks. so I think uh, there's a, there's a dichotomy within Africa in terms of different markets or different needs that need to be served. So, and I, I think that was represented a little bit in, in the way these presentations were set up. So myself and Pete, we were talking about the established life assurers going into, into new markets where they perceive uh, a growing middle class, a growing uh, type of market that, that we're used to serving. And, 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 and they're quite specific that that's, that's the opportunity that they're serving. Um, Adrian, of course, was talking more around the the micro-insurance, so all those elements that you're talking to as well. So so I think there's there's a space for both. I mean, uh, I think certainly within the Africa Committee and and increasingly across countries, uh, companies are are, are recognising that there's no substitute for having people on the ground who understand the market, who understand how to interact with those that distribute the product. Um, with the specifics of, of regulation and how, how the system works. Um, so so I, think, I think all the points that you raise are very, very valid, but I, I would also say that there, there's, there's room. I mean, people, middle-income people, uh, have, a, have a protection need as well that, that's probably no, no different in Africa than it might be in Europe.
5: So, I mean, you, need, uh, you hit the nail on the head, so you need to look at the needs, right? So, similar to what we said on the regulations, you need to, you can't just bring in something like SAM or SOMC2 into some of these other countries. You need to look at what the needs are, what's the needs of the regulator, what's the, need, the needs of the industry, and then tailor those regulations t- to the country. Similarly on the products, you need to look at what are the needs. Um, I think. Peter mentioned or Norman mentioned in terms of the funeral insurance in Nigeria, it doesn't really sell because they believe it's a jinx. So you need to look at what the other needs of the, of the population is and then design your products around that. So certainly, yeah, you can't, you're not going to find everything on Google. You're going to Google a bit and then you need, need to get on a plane and go to that country and spend time on the ground and learn what will appeal to the people.
3: just one thing i would want to add is that i agree with everything that's said now but there's definitely actually do add value um i don't think we should shoot ourselves in the foot and say that even though it's in these countries and the products are different we don't add value i think one thing we do need is we need to actually spend time in the country and not try and design products from cape town for other countries um i think there should be more willingness to actually live in those countries and stay in those countries
4: We can attempt just to have a fourth say. I think it actually gets back to Marjorie's point as well. Well, it's always about balance. Yes, there's efficiencies about rolling out a standardized mass production in a box kind of solution that you just know you can do and, and replicate. So that's the drive to do what we know. But at the same time, this thing of actually appreciating that we're all, well, we're all different, but we're all the same and actually. Be aware and sensitive to that, and take your standardised solution um, along. But then, so sort of say, well, how does how do my blocks, whatever, so sort of fit together into that particular market? And yeah, uh, I think it's just it's good that you remind all of us about that sort of need to be open to that and sensitive to it.
3: I've got. Two questions. First of all, related to your comments, Nikki, and to yours, Adrian, what is the perception in the rest of Africa of South African actuaries? Is there anything we need to do differently when dealing with the rest of Africa? And the second question is what is the extent of the use of technology in insurance solutions in West Africa? (laughs) <laughs> um, I think from what I've spoken to people, um, and I think there's a general, uh, There's not just with actuaries, um, it is seen in general at sometimes the Africans, maybe we are just from nature, very direct and forward people, that we come over as very arrogant and um, bossy in how we describe things. So I think um, we should be aware that we do carry that reputation. It's not just in the actual field. I think it's in all business relationships with South Africans and um, the rest of South Africa, uh, African countries. Um, Any other question on the mobile? Um, from what I'm aware, especially in Ghana, there's been um, lots of take-up on uh, mobile micro-insurance. So it started with what they call a freemium model, where people uh, got free insurance if you bought airtime. It is now steadily expanding where people have started to learn and trust the product that um, buying insurance over the mobile phone is something that's picking up, especially in Ghana, but in lots of African countries. So that is a, a very fast and rapidly developing field, um, how to integrate mobile systems with um, insurance. Else? Hey. Uh, if you want
2: to. Yeah, maybe just on, on that perception of South Africans. I mean, I think, I think, I think there is a perception when, when, uh, when people first meet us that we might be arrogant or, or pushy or whatever. But I, you know, I think the nature of what we're trying to do, where we establish relationships, you know, start engaging properly, you know, I think that becomes very much uh, personality dependent. And, and, and I think that, in my experience, that gets broken down relatively quickly.
5: I just had a comment on the technology. So, I mentioned uh, earlier there's about 41 million uh, internet users in, in Nigeria. Uh, and some things that we see coming through there's a price comparison website that's now started. Uh, I don't know if it's up and running yet, but you can get a couple of quotes. And we see more and more insurance companies going the direct route as well. And direct as far as uh, going internet and you can effectively buy insurance on the, on the internet, on the websites. It's not smooth, it's not as you would imagine buying insurance on the internet, but you can at least click and you can at least uh, get a quote. So it is moving rapidly uh, and that's a move from uh, uh, a massive broker market, massive agent market, where some of the insurance companies would have 5,000 agents out there, uh, to realizing that direct is a more efficient way of distributing insurance and going to internet and going web-based.
8: Adrian, I have 17 questions for you, but I'll restrict it two. <laughs> what do we do as actuaries to de-link the selling of crop insurance through the credit cycle? And secondly, what are the good pointers of developing a product that can reduce basis risk?
3: Please repeat, sorry about
8: that. Question one, what can we as actuaries do to reduce the delinking of crop insurance to credit? Because usually it is sold to farmers who are in need of credit and it becomes a precondition to obtaining of a loan and thereby defeats the purpose of insurance. So what do we and other stakeholders can do about it? And secondly, the biggest risk in developing of a crop insurance product is basis risk, which you explained. What are good pointers to develop a product which reduces basis risk?
3: Um, those are very valid questions. Um. <laughs> <laughs> uh, firstly.
8: Hence, uh, I'm not asking the remaining 15.
3: <laughs> um, I think that it's a very important thing about the, the decoupling de- about the direct and versus seed. So at the moment, it, it works is that if you buy a bag of seeds, you get a number in it, and if you SMS that number, Um, and the coupon number, then you get automatic insurance. Um, The great thing about it is that the the take up picks up more, uh, but the the negative is that people aren't really aware that they have it all day. It's a default action. So if people aren't aware of the the product, they're not aware of the benefit afterwards. Um, One thing that I hope will help with it is, firstly, if more micro-insurance agents can be trained and work in that market, then you don't have to sell it as a default through the seed suppliers, then people can actually go to people and sell it directly. Um, I think another thing how it can benefit is if it's um, bundled with other products. So at the moment, the agricultural product protects a farmer against the risk um, of non-payment due to drought, but other reasons why you couldn't repay his loan is because he was sick. So he couldn't actually work his fields because he works manly, and therefore he couldn't farm and he couldn't pay back his loan. Um, Or somebody in the family died and he had to spend time on that or there was one less labor to work, etc. So I think um, if you can bundle the product to give more comprehensive solutions and use agents, then it's one way to create a direct link with it. Um, The idea about formalizing the regulation is that you can have that sort of innovation now. The, The legal protection is there for insurance companies, for agents to go out and sell the product. Um, Basis risk, there's various ways you can address it. The easiest way, but that's the the complexity of it, is that you can have something that pays out, say, once in 20 years for very bad droughts. Then in a a very bad drought, everybody's affected. So everybody gets a payout. There's no variation of some people got rain and some people didn't, some got a payout more or less, etc. So if you make the payout frequency less, then you increase the basis risk and the payout, and you reduce the cost. Well, so if you, yeah, the frequency is lower, uh, you also reduce the cost. Um, but the problem is, if there was for 10 years no drought, then sh- uh, policyholder order kept on paying premiums every year, he never got anything back, and he forgets and thinks, this is useless. He stops paying the next year on the internet, and you've got a problem. Um, so increasing the frequency, um, as then the, the effect of, you get payouts more often, but the cost increases and basis risk increases. So how to find that middle ground? Um, I think one way to do it is if you can cover more areas, bigger areas at one time, then the averaging effect will be better. So maybe if, um, yeah, that's, that's the only one that I can think of, I'm gonna, I'm gonna expand into that. Does that help?
0: think okay, we've got time for one more question. Um, sorry,
1: sorry, Arjun, it's just a comment around the basis risk. Um, so I think what might actually help there is you, the basis risk you're talking about is on a kind of a a large scale level. If you're still looking at the individual farmer, you'll still have that kind of fluctuation in terms of what the actual loss was compared to what being, what's being paid out. Yes. So I think from what I've seen up and some, some of the pilots being run in India, some of the innovation they were thinking around is you do make out payments based off an index, but you could also try and structure something where you partner with um, NGOs or field partners and. Um, try and facilitate maybe a payment at the end of a crop season, which could then be allocated to individual farmers within the community as decided by that partner. So that obviously requires a bit of a leap of faith. needs a lot more regulation. It's something that I don't think they've cracked yet, and we would need to obviously understand a little bit better. But it's working with the people on the field to try and see how you can reduce that basis risk using the community in some manner of some sort, but yeah, just a passing comment. Thanks.
3: Thank you for that.
0: There's one last question up front
6: here. Hi, uh, I'm Tassius from Old Mucho. Uh, The first one is not a question, but it's an observation. I was kind of surprised to see a panel of 100% white, considering we're talking about exploring opportunities in Africa. Given that, uh, how have you come across any difficulties in terms of cultural differences in trying to explore business into Africa?
5: So one comment on the, on the first comment. On the second comment, uh, how do you find the cultural differences? So yeah, clearly every country is different. Uh, even though we said this morning Ghana is close to Nigeria. It's completely two different, different worlds, right? Um, How I deal with it, um, you need to, again, spend time there. You need to respect the different cultures. You need to eat the food when they offer it to you um, and get to know the people. And you need to always tell people, and I tell my team as well, take it in your stride and appreciate it for what it is and enjoy the experience. And don't go with preconceived uh, perceptions. And uh, yeah, enjoy the experience, explore. And they're going to Africa, experience the different cultures, get to eat the different food, and uh, that will also, I think, help you in the, the value and the skills that you can add to the organizations and to the clients.
3: I just want to add so, my only real um, experience was in Kenya, and luckily, there are people are extremely friendly, so to interact with the, the people is very easy and they eat lots of choma which is a barbecued meat, and as an Afrikaner, I really love that. So food-wise and people-wise, it's very easy to, to integrate there.
0: Okay, thank you very much. Um, a couple of announcements. Um, if you've ordered a printed copy of the paper's book, please can you collect this from the registration desk during the lunch break? And we'll now break for lunch, which is served in Exhibition Hall One and the next session starts one twenty five. We can just thank the speakers again before we go. Thank you.